0: Welcome to Wheel to Wheel F1. I'm Noah Hicks, joined by Tanner Hicks and Lance Ellington. And today we're going to be bringing to you F1 Explained, F1 101, whatever you want to call it, F1 for dummies even. We're going to be walking through some of the terms and and, uh, lingo for, for F1. If you're watching races, if you've been listening to us and you're not understanding a lot of what we've been saying, we're going to address it today. We're going to kind of go step by step some of the more basic stuff at the start. and then some of the some of the terms that we still mention a lot that, you know, aren't that self-explanatory. And before we jump into that, guys, I'm so happy to be back. I felt a little left out missing the last episode. Tanner's been giving me a hard time about him being the, the better host and editor. but I, I, I'm
1: here to set the record straight uh but (laughs) oh no 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 i would never claim that editor title from you noah you're you're such a great editor and that's why you're the only man for that job oh yeah you're you're too kind i i can i can
0: tell how much you must have enjoyed that job
2: (laughs) hey i don't i don't know about editing but i'll let the numbers speak for themselves on what episodes do great uh i'll be a common denominator though between all of them and so we'll see
0: All right, yeah, we know Lance is 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 one of the the answers to the pod. It's it's really is it is it Tanner or me, you know that's that's the real toss up. (laughs) I'd love it for for it to be both of us. (laughs) Let, Let me get that out of the
2: way. I'm sure it is. We always get good good bands when it's all three of us or more and having a good time. But yeah, I'm excited about this podcast. We've hinted at it a few other times and talked about this episode. And excited to get into, you know, what does the weekend look like? What does Q1 mean? What does P1 mean? What's pole? What's box box? Covering all these different lingos and terminologies. Because I know when I started watching Formula One, I had no clue what some of this stuff meant for the first couple of races that I watched. I had some understanding from watching Netflix. But other than that, I think I was still missing quite a bit. So I'm excited to, to get this opportunity and hopefully educate some of the community out there, bring in some new fans, provide a refresher for those who, who are maybe a bit more seasoned. So should be a good time. Yeah, I'm
1: excited. I'm kind of with you, Lance. There was a lot of stuff I didn't understand um, when I was first watching races and you know, Google's your friend. We'd like to be your friends too in a, a perfectly non-creepy uh, podcast podcast. uh, I'm glad glad that you made it. I'm glad that you said
0: non-creepy because it still sounded completely creepy. (laughs) Oh, you know,
1: I'm just, I'm just here for, for all the people who love Tundra Tanner, which is my, my persona until the next race preview episode. So yeah, no, had to throw it in. It's, it's always, always good dance with that.
2: Right. I will say that uh, Tundra Tanner did seem to catch on a bit last episode. I know we got messages from a few of our listeners saying they, uh, they really enjoyed that nickname so far. So we'll see. It seems like Noah has a bit of a tall task in front of him for our next preview to give him to improve upon that. I know it's, it's, it's going to be tough to top that one.
0: I really thought that one had some some oomph behind it. So so we'll we'll see how, how I can do now after uh using up a few names but but yeah if if you don't know the other two names we've used for tanner go out and check our race previews you can listen to me rattle off some some crappy nicknames for for tanner as our as our weather forecaster so (laughs) but with that let's jump into some of the uh the terminology and lingo so i think one of the big broad strokes that we wanted to cover first is in formula 1 at this time currently there are 10 teams and 20 drivers there's not always 10 teams at most circuits there's actually enough spots for i want to say 24 cars maybe correct me if i'm wrong uh, because there, right because there have been 12 teams in the past but on the current grid we have 10 teams and 20 drivers there will there are two drivers per team those drivers are chosen by the team. They're given contracts and paid accordingly. If you're looking up their salary, that's not all they're making. Obviously, every driver has, has a sponsorships and endorsements. So don't worry. They're, they're better off than, than you know the measly $20 million contracts that a couple drivers have.
1: God, I'd hate to see a $20 million contract come my way. I just feel so slighted compared to Max (laughs) Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. Just grind
2: my gears on this F1 podcast. But as we're talking about these 20 drivers, when I'm thinking about some of the teams that we currently have on the grid, it seems like a lot of the teams try to pair a veteran driver with maybe an up-and-coming driver or someone they hope is going to be up-and-coming. Yes, I think we do have some teams where – they're both a bit younger, such as maybe an AlphaTauri with a with a Pierre Gasly who's a little bit on the younger side when it comes to discussing a veteran with a Yuki. But when you look at teams like Mercedes, who have George Russell and Lewis Hamilton, or maybe something like McLaren with Daniel Ricciardo and Lando Norris, or Alpine with Fernando Alonso, and Esteban Ocon, that seems to be the makeup. But all these drivers, you know, do have different paths. I think to getting on the grid and getting with these teams. So Tanner, do you want to talk about a little bit about maybe like a paid driver versus what's what's another way someone can get into Formula One as a driver?
1: Yeah, so there are a few things I want to hit on from what you just said. And the first thing is when we talk about that driver combination for one team, that's what's called a driver lineup, that driver lineup for a team. So the driver lineup for Alpine is Esteban Ocon and Fernando Alonso. To get back to what you said a minute ago, it's basically a mixed bag for how people get into F1. There are people who nowadays always go through the pretty typical channels. They'll drive in some lower tiers of of racing, usually in Europe, going through series like GP3, Formula 3, Formula 2, and then Formula 1. For other people, it can be slightly different. For instance, Yuki Sonoda just drove in Japan before coming to Formula 1 the reason that it can be different for some of those drivers. So for instance, a George Russell or a Charles Leclerc, or even this year, he's not on the grid, but he's a reserve driver, which we can talk about later as well. What's the grid? Yes. The grid, the grid is just, uh, all 20 drivers. that's, That's the best way to explain it. Um, it's, it's pretty simple, but that's a, that's a good question. Um, but what I was saying is for all those guys, Oscar Piastre, George Russell, Charles Leclerc, these are guys that, though they do bring plenty of sponsorship money to the sport and to their teams, they mostly made it to Formula One on their merit. They won in Formula Two. And so, of course, the, the obvious next step for them is to go up into Formula One. The same way, if you're playing baseball, if you're great in the AAA, at some point, theoretically, you would hope that you get promoted to. To major league baseball. On the other hand, there are some drivers who, though they still usually go through those channels, they go through formula three, formula two, they might not win, but they still might get a seat in formula one. So that's your Joe Guan Yu. That's your Nicholas Latifi. That's your Nikita Mazepin, not so much anymore. Uh, These are guys who are labeled as pay drivers who bring in tons and tons of sponsorship money and so for teams like Williams, teams like Haas, to an extent, Alfa Romeo, it's really meaningful for to have some drivers come in who can push in a ton of cash flow and make sure that that team can stay alive for the season. And not only that, but it makes sure that they can also make some upgrades to keep up with the McLarens, the Alpines, the Mercedes, the Red Bulls of the, of the world. So that's why a lot of those pay drivers come in. They don't usually make it into your top tier teams, though. They're mostly there to keep those bottom teams, those less cash-rich teams afloat.
0: Yeah, and the only thing that I'll add there is to get into Formula One, you do have to have a certain amount of points on what's called a super license. And so that's competing in those channels that Tanner talked about. You have to rack up those points because they won't let any... Rich guy off the street drive these cars. You do have to have some qualifications, and, and Formula One teams, though they do value their money seriously, they're not going to let a driver up that's clearly incompetent and uh, and unable to operate these these cars. So that's the only thing that I'll add on to that. But
2: yeah, Lance, what's up? Yeah, and one thing I want to get to. I don't know where you wanted to head next. But as we're talking about the drivers, I just want to give a voiceover on some of these teams. So we probably, you know, people recognize most of the brands I almost would call them, like a McLaren, a Mercedes, a Red Bull, an Aston Martin. And in a lot of sense, when it comes to Formula One, the way I would perceive these teams is they function as brands a little bit, right? McLaren does not necessarily, they make the car, but they're not making the engine for that car, right? They're getting that from Mercedes or someone like Haas, they're getting their engine from Ferrari. So there is some, I guess, sharing of technology there here on the grid just because probably of the advancements of these engines and the cost that it takes to make some of it. But some of these cars do function or some of these teams do function a bit more like a brand or branding. And Tanner, what do you have?
1: Yeah, so to add to that, not only are they a brand, but the best way to think about it, and there's something named after it in in Formula One. These teams are all known as constructors. They're constructing their own car, their own Formula One car for each season. And so they go into the constructors championship. Think about it as just a team standings type of deal, but that's the t- constructors championship. Every team has to be a constructor to compete in that, uh, in that championship in those standings. Yep. Yep. And,
0: and on that too, the, you know, the, the constructors, those are the teams um, and, and, and some of those teams are engine suppliers and uh, and, and so they're every engine supplier has to uh, you know, have a, have a team that they, that they use. And, and so we've got Mercedes, Red Bull uh, Ferrari and Renault. And so those are the only teams, for engine suppliers currently, um, what would be interesting is if a team like Andretti, or would, now we can say constructor, if a team like Andretti joined F1 and didn't make their own engine and, and didn't strike a deal really with any of the engine suppliers, Renault would be required to be their engine supplier because they only have one team, that is Alpine, and 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 so uh, that's because they're the only team that has one. So they take the team with the minimum, and they force them to supply if they don't have a deal. So um, and on that entering F one huge fee to join. All teams have to agree. Uh, so 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 that's one reason Andretti's not in yet. Is is teams aren't sure they want to split up revenue, but uh, between them, and now an 11th team. So that's a whole nother can of worms there. Uh, but let's jump into what a team principle means. So team principle in American sports, you can think of it as manager, coach, GM, some kind of mix between all of those. So they're not making real gameplay decisions. You have strategists and engineers who, who handle a lot of those, but, but really, these guys are the kind of general managers/ slash coaches slash you know therapists. yeah I'm, I'm going with therapists of, of the drivers at times so so that's really the uh, the team principal role so that's when we talk about Gunther Steiner and uh, and I don't know Otmar Safnauer. those guys are team principals and Toto Toto's a big yeah one. Um, some
2: of these some of these team principals have developed quite a personality and especially through the Netflix series Drive to Survive have gotten their time in the spotlight per se and are now, you know, Haas and Steiner are, are one and one together. You know, Toto and Mercedes go hand in hand. So that's definitely where the team principal is. Um, is there anything else to add there that we're missing on that front? I guess maybe point out that these team principals usually – do come from more of an engineering background and have been part of the motorsport world for decades, you know, whether that's, you know, coming up through the engineering side, spent time as a race strategist and things like that and kind of have paid their dues as in any sport working their way up. And even at times, you know, we've seen uh, drivers in the past go and be part of the team, whether that's maybe on a consulting basis or on a strategy level. And that's something we saw within old great driver at uh, Nicky Lauda, I believe served as kind of in a consulting role. I don't know his exact title, but was with Ferrari for a bit during his retirement years. Yeah, exactly. And there are different kinds of team principles,
1: right? So that exactly like you said, Lance, there are plenty of team principles that rise up through the ranks. They start as, as more of an engineering background and they make their way up to be the spokesperson for their team the mentor for their drivers, just the big boss over everybody else. There's also some different routes that can happen with it. So for instance, Total Wolf or Otmar Safnauer, they each bring in significant amount of funding in the team. So it's almost like you're bringing in a version of a paid driver at in-your-team principal. So it can be a little bit different where Total Wolf brings in millions and millions of dollars in a Mercedes. Otmar Safnauer also brings BWT into Alpine.
0: Yeah. And, 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 but with Otmar, you know, a lot of that relationship with BWT or the money he brings in with BWT is really just because of the relationship that he's built with them. They, they trust him and and they wanted to follow him because um maybe they also could tell that Aston Martin was a sinking ship. Um, but, but, but really, you know, it's a lot, all about relationships in that business at times uh with those team principles, developing that with, other teams. Um, Maybe BWT knew that Otmar could convince the Alpine team to go with their pink. So, uh, so that could be part of it too. (laughs) But building off of that, let's talk a little bit about the race weekend. Let's talk about, you know, kind of the structure of that race weekend. You have these things we've been calling free practices, qualifying. We've been talking about Q1, Q2, Q3. What does that mean? Lance, kick us off with that.
2: Yeah, so if I'm not mistaken, most race weekends are considered to be a three day weekend, I want to say, a Friday to Sunday. Sometimes they've been recently trying to stretch it out a bit more and make it a Thursday to Sunday and get, you know, maybe an extra day of revenue, some more practices in. But to kick off the weekend, once all the teams have traveled, and it is amazing, you know, these teams traveling with these Formula One cars, their teams of engineers across the world, across the countries, or across the continents. You know, we just came from Australia and they had to give a week of time on the back end and front end, in large part due to, I'm sure, the jet lag and the amount of freight that all the teams are moving. But to kick off each weekend, there's usually practices, and I believe they're called FP1. FP2, and FP3. And this is a chance for the teams to maybe test out some different tires, get on the track, maybe if things have changed, learn what the new turns are, begin to gather data. Formula One is a data-driven sport no matter how you cut it. These cars are just feeding tons and tons, you know, millions, some ponds, billions of data points back to their engineers and race strategists to make the best decisions. So that's what these practices are for. Sometimes, You will be able to see times as a fan and see how, you know, lap times are going for your favorite driver or your favorite team. Word of caution when it does come to that, I would say, because you never truly know who is maybe holding back a bit of not, you know, hitting their top during those times, as well as who's just testing out, you know, different strategies, different tires, whatever the case may be, to get that data to be prepared come quality on Saturday. Anything uh, to add? Yeah, on that, I think one thing to add those different strategies. Kind of
0: what Lance means by that, some of those different strategies might be high fuel or low fuel strategies. So w- when I say that for low fuel, you know, you have that's usually what you're running during qualifying because you're really trying to put in that single lap speed. You'll have you have to run what what I'm calling high fuel for the race because you have to, you don't refuel your car during the race. You have to go start to finish with all of that fuel. There's a required amount of fuel you have to finish the race with. That is a whole nother thing. So sometimes during one of the free practices, teams will be running that kind of high fuel strategy. That's going to make the car heavier. It's going to be a bit slower. So try not to read too much into the free practice times. There's usually a general kind of plus minus, uh, with, with those times. So I usually try not to read too much into it.
2: So, yeah, we have those practices, you know, usually there's three practices or I think there's always three practices for these teams, these drivers to get these labs and gather the data and see what's taking place at the track that weekend and, you know, get prepared for qualies, which take place on Saturday. And I, when I say qualities, I mean, qualifying, So Tanner, can you tell us a little bit of uh, how qualifying happens, what's taking place, and what's the whole point of qualifying in Formula One and why it's important? Yeah, so qualifying
1: for every race, it's the biggest thing that actually matters. It's just going to set the grid. It's going to set the spots for the race on Sunday. And so what I mean by that is the person that has the fastest time at the end of qualifying Gonna start the race in fr- in first place on pole in P1. Those are all ways to say it. That's all everything you want to say, uh, understand with it all. So P2 starting in second place. They're not they're not Americans, they're they're posh Europeans that like to say P2 and P3 and P4. And it's a little bit fancier than what we have in America, the first and second place. At least that's the way I think about it. But <laughs> moving on from that with quali the the hardest thing to understand about it is that there are three different parts of it you mentioned you touched on it a little bit earlier so what they start with quali is q1 that's when all 20 drivers are on the grid trying to put in a twi- put in a time in the it's usually 20 minutes
2: for each qualifying session if i'm not mistaken the Q1s, it goes 20, maybe 15, 10, I want to say. Something along the order of that as there becomes less cars in that, which I'll toss it back to Tanner so you can finish telling us what Q1 is. Yeah, exactly. So Q1, like I said, it has all 20 drivers. And the biggest purpose of
1: Q1 is just to, to kick out some, dri- some drivers to clear the circuit up a little bit for, to make racing a little bit easier so they don't have to dodge as many cars when they're doing their fast times and so what cars will do in q1 they'll come out of their garage they'll come out of their pits and go and do what's called an outlap and while they're doing that outlap the biggest function of that is heating up their tires and making sure that they're ready to go all out they're ready to put in a crazy fast time on this circuit and so once they put in that crazy fast time on that circuit that's the time their fastest time that's what gets registered in q1 is always going to knock out the bottom five. So we're talking 20 through 16 uh, spots. And once they're all kicked out, then we move into Q2 and so on and so on. Q2 is the same as Q1, except it knocks out 15 to 11. So five more drivers. And so then we get into Q3 and it's those top 10 drivers just trying to put in the exact best time that they can to qualify in the best spot. And so it's almost like in Q2 and Q1, drivers who finish above that cut line, they don't really care where they are. That time's not going to matter at the end of this qualifying session. They just want to be above it. So if you, if Lewis Hamilton, maybe Charles Leclerc is a better example. If Charles Leclerc finishes with the 12th fastest time in Q1, he still moves on to Q2. If Charles Leclerc finishes with the ninth fastest time in Q2, He's, he moves on to Q3, but if he's behind eight other drivers in Q2, those drivers lose their times going into Q3. So they have to set new fastest times because it resets at the start of every qualifying session. And so that's the biggest thing to understand. It can be a little bit confusing since you're just kicking off driver, kicking out drivers. Occasionally drivers won't be able to put in times because maybe they'll crash out and they're only fast lap um, and that can Add a bunch of other complications to the the qualifying format.
0: Yeah, and the only thing I'll add there is on on outlaps. You, you mentioned outlaps. You mentioned heating up tires and, and getting them ready. So what Tanner means by that is to get these tires ready. These these are you know not your typical road tires that you're putting on. Uh, in my case, a Volkswagen Jetta. Um, the, these these tires are are different and they're really pushing them to the edge from the get-go. And so when, if you're trying to go full speed out of the pit lane with these tires, odds are you might, you know, slip up a little, these, these tires won't be ready. So, so you're trying to warm them up. You're trying to wear them in so that you can push them a little harder. Now, when I say slip up, that's, that's a whole, that's a whole nother can of worms for F1 lingo. So, You probably have heard us talk about tire lockup or maybe even flat spotting a tire. And if you haven't heard us talk about it, if you've watched races, you've definitely heard uh, Crofty and and Martin Brundle talk about it. So tire lockup is when you're making a turn or you're braking and you're trying to turn the wheel or, or car and the tire literally, you know, stops moving. It's not, you know turning like the rest of the tires are at the same time. So that tire locks up. Now, when you do that, that tire is technically not uh, getting the same friction with the track that the rest of the tires are getting. So what that might cause is a flat spot. And so that flat spot means you're having a part on your tire that has rubbed off differently on that tire. The tread and has been all pulled off. The, yeah. the tread's been pulled off. Thank you, Tanner. Um, and, and, and so with that, that, that means, you know, you're pushing these cars to the limit, these tires to the limit. That's a pretty huge uh, thing that's going to impact your drive. And so that might mean you need to come in for a pit stop for new tires because otherwise it's really going to hurt your lap time.
2: Yeah, no, I think that was a good explanation of, um, of a flat spot and kind of where some of the tire management as we say, which just refers to how these teams and these drivers try to manage tires throughout quality and throughout the weekend. And I think we covered most of qualifying and what takes place there. So just to give kind of a quick quick recap, because I know it was a lot of information, especially if this is your first time learning about some of this info. So we start off with Q1 with 20 drivers. From there, we go into Q2 with the top 15 drivers who had the fastest time previously, and all times reset. And then we go through a second session there in Q2 and move into Q3, and we get down to finally our 10 drivers. And again, what is taking place at each step is five drivers knocked out, another five, finally your final 10. And this is setting the spots, you know, as we say on the grid, where the starting spots will be for each driver come race on Sunday. And what all these drivers are jockeying for, shall we say, is they are going for pole which as turner pointed out earlier we call p1 or we call first that is kind of the goal for the drivers of you know your max verstappen your lewis hamilton your charles leclerc yes all these drivers are going for it but there is an advantage of starting first as our lovely will buxton would say when you're in first you win so <laughs> but that's mainly the place there and what's really important to note as we now head into maybe talking a bit more about the race is when we talk about these teams getting points, which is how they are measured and compared against each other, just like any other sport throughout the season, you only get points if you place in the top 10 at the end of a race day, which is why it's so important in starting in first, you know, in pull, because that gives you the best chance to win the most points for your team during the race. I know that sounds really simple. I'm just trying to make this as clear as possible for those who do need it. Explaining
0: qualifying several times never hurts. It (laughs) isn't, it's not intuitive. You would wish that it was intuitive, but it's really not. I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit complex. I think they changed it into the current format sometime in the mid two thousands, maybe 2006, kind of pulling that out of nowhere, but I think it was 2006 or some, maybe I'm, within a couple of years there. I don't know, but, but yeah, so they've been using that format since then. And, um, yeah, thank, thanks for re-explaining because really that's one of the hardest things and most important things to understand about F1, uh, especially for new fans. Let's jump into a little bit of a uh, driver and engineer lingo. I mean, you hear these drivers come on radio during the race and they might be using some kind of code language and all of that. And so you're not meant to understand everything, but you, you can be meant to understand a little bit. So, so let's break down some of the, the more common uh, phrases that they use, I guess. So, so Tanner, tell us what box box means. We love that box.
1: One. Yeah, box box just means come into the pits. So when an engineer yells at Max Verstappen to box box, That means they're ready for him to come in because they've analyzed the strategy day and night, 24 hours. And they know that this lap based on when other cars have pitted based on the tire temperature, based on the tire, wear, that lap is the perfect time for them to pit. Sometimes
2: they screw it up though. And so going into these pit lanes, right into this pit stop, a box, box, These are key points during the races, right? We've talked a lot about the drivers and the team. Well, a big part of the team are these engineers, are these pit crews. And these are the best pit crews in the world, bar none. They're doing these pit stops, which means changing these four tires, sometimes having to do even a little bit more to the car, all within a matter of three seconds, roughly, we'll say. you know, Sometimes getting as low as two and a half seconds. And these can be changes to the race, game changers. And where the car may come out, right? We're talking these cars are, as fa- excuse me, are as fast as can be, and so a loss of five seconds is dramatic and can drastically, drastically change where the car will come out back into the race. Tanner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure.
1: Like, you think Guido from Cars is fast? Just watch an F one pit crew changing <laughs> tires at a pit stop. It's it's pretty insane, insane. Especially when we're no, talking
2: about like no Guido slandered on this pod. Come on, <laughs> we be <stoned>. stand Guido. <laughs> a real, a real Ferrari. A real
0: Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be wagging your hand like that.
2: <laughs> oh man. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's amazing watching these pit stops. You know, as much as we talk about the cars and these drivers are impressive, you know, I am very impressed when it comes, you know, to that part taking place. Yeah, for sure. And it's a huge part of the
1: strategy. I mean, that's that's the stuff that changes more if if you don't if you don't have a good car or maybe or if this driver is having a great lap. These are the variables that can come into the race that just change everything.
0: There are even regulations around the pit stop. I mean, entering the pit lane, you can only be going, I think it's 80 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's what it is. If you're going over that, you're going to get a penalty during the race. If you're even going over that during free practice, you're going to get a, a fine. Will it be a big fine? No. I think Sebastian Vettel's fine for last weekend for speeding in the pit lane was 600 euros
1: or something like that. So it's, that it's was- pretty low. So so Sebastian Vettel had a had a fine for riding a scooter though. I think it had that two was fines. A, okay. Got it. <laughs> two fines. The scooter fine was was a lot more than that, though. That yes. was a five thousand pound fine. That was that that touched the bank account a little bit. Can't be riding scooters around willy-nilly, Sebastian. Come on, you've been that here
2: before. That un- is unbelievable to ride on the track. But another part with these pit stops, which is so interesting is these teams play mind games with each other sometimes, right? So they're all one after each other, right? You have the maybe two Ferrari, you know, garages, and then the two Red Bulls and so forth and kind of works down. And these teams will come out to maybe try to get another team that they're trying to pass or undercut, shall we say, which we'll explain in a second, get them to come out as well. And then they won't call their guy in, you know, for a pit stop for a box box. But the other team will. And all of a sudden it's completely changed the dynamics or what the other team was thinking. And I just find that fascinating that even on, you know, on such a level of that, these engineers, it almost seems petty. But it truly is, as we've talked before, like a game of chess. But that brings me to my next point. Noah, would you like to explain an undercut since it is still looped in to this uh, this pit stop that we're talking about? I will. I would love to. Thank you, Lance. Um, so an undercut. When, when,
0: we're, when we say undercut or overcut, what teams might, you know, learn from their race strategists. Yeah. Even constructors have people who are their only draw job is figuring out the optimal race strategy. And so they might, you know, be looking at strategy and say, okay, the, most, the best way to beat X team is with an undercut. And with that, that means you're pitting before someone that, I mean, that's as simple as it is, is you're pitting before them to try and, you know, warm up your tires, kind of get up to speed on those fresh tires, because fresher tires do go faster. That's why teams have to make a pit stop. Um, if, if, if you use that to your advantage, you might be able to make up more time or build a bigger lead than the team that you're really competing with. So that's what an undercut is sometimes teams do overcuts where they try to, you know, stretch out tires and, and on that, they might even put their drivers on different strategies. They might have one driver who they might be trying to undercut. They might, you know, just be trying to stretch out their tires to, the, you know, suggested kind of limit, but they might have the other driver trying to last. And so you might see that with teams where if a driver, the driver in first is starting to fade a little bit. So he's going to, he's going to pit. Maybe it's an undercut. Maybe it's not. And you might have their teammate try and go longer. So, so that way they can block the competitor for the first place uh, from you know, building too much of a lead. So, so you might see that strategy as well.
1: Tanner, got anything to add? Yeah. So it can be a little bit complicated with the undercut and the overcut. One thing to point out with every race is you, you might notice that if you see the fastest lap times, they're not as fast as the times that you see in qualifying and some of their free practices. And a lot of that like Noah said earlier, can be because they're carrying heavier fuel loads in the actual race than they would in qualifying or free practice. That said, an even bigger part of that is they're conserving their tires for a lot of these laps. A lot of these laps, these drivers aren't going out to set the fastest possible time that they can because they're trying to conserve their tires for a long time. And so a lot of times, when you see a team at the top try and undercut somebody else, like say Charles Leclerc is leading the race, Max Verstappen's right behind. Ferrari pits, Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen stay, stays out. What will happen then is then Max's race engineer will radio in and say, Max, mode push. And that means go all out, do the fastest time that you possibly can, because now's your chance to gain some time. Now you're not sitting in any of the dirty air that might be coming off of the back back of that Ferrari. Now you have a clean track to just go as fast as you possibly can, push it as fast as you can, and then stretch your tires until there's no tread left, and then you can switch out tires. And so that's one of the things that can be complicated when going in for an undercut. The only other thing I want to mention with this strategy is when a team goes into the pits, One of the biggest factors, and you might see this in some of the broadcasts, if it'll show the amount of total time that it'll it'll take for the pit. So a common example is around 20 seconds, right? And so what those strategists figure out is if, let's say, Lewis Hamilton wants to go into the pits, if he comes out of this pits 20 seconds behind from where he was before, is he coming out behind a huge row, a huge train of drivers that he doesn't want to have to pass? and going through the next uh next stint of the race for drivers who haven't pitted yet or is he coming out in clean air he gets to drive normally he doesn't have to worry about a ton of traffic and so that's another thing that these strategists are thinking about on when they're trying to pit these cars
0: but wait tanner what's clean air what's dirty air i thought you could only go faster when you were right behind cars
1: Yes, Noah. Okay. So this dirty air clean air thing, this is something that we cared a lot more about in that turbo hybrid era that we just got out of, which it was the style of cars that they just had coming into these new regulations. One of the hardest things about that era of cars is it made it very difficult for cars to travel or to follow a car maybe half a second maybe three quarters of a second in front of them because the car would generate a bunch of dirty air that would follow a car and so it basically slowed down the car behind them and so if lewis is following max he's getting a ton of dirty air flowing off of max's car and clean air is just what i'm referring to as kind of a clean race you're not straight behind anybody It's just the track and you and you're just kind of going. So you're not trying to like you see in NASCAR or something like that. You're not trying to catch a draft from somebody else because that can actually hurt you in Formula One. Um, That can change in DRS zones, which I'll let somebody else explain. But that's usually how I think about clean air and dirty air.
0: Yeah. Before we jump into DRS, I do want to add, and I'm kind of confused by this whole phenomenon too. Um, so maybe I put Tanner in a tough spot, but there are instances where you can be faster when you're behind cars, uh, especially in qualifying, you might see a teammate kind of going in front of their other teammate. And, and for that, you know, they really are punching a hole in the air, um, is the term that they like to use. And and so for that, that, that air means less resistance on the car. That means you can go faster but that's not always the case when you're following a car. Sometimes, you know, if these cars are weaving or not weaving, because that's a penalty. Um, <laughs> but if these cars are, you know, less predictable, let's say, um, then you might be catching that dirty air and that is harder on the car to follow. It will, you know, impact your tires more. I don't really understand it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of talking from a, an uneducated Uh, unscientific standpoint and the difference between dirty air and, um, and, um, you know, close following, but, but I I thought that would be useful to
2: add. Now, fair enough. And for those who paid attention and listened through that, good for you. And if for some reason you zoned out during the conversation about different types of air, I don't blame you. But also be sure you're listening now, because I know we've been talking a lot about strategy and pit stops. Maybe not the most exciting stuff, but things you are going to see on race day, things you are going to hear the announcers talk about. One thing I want to jump to, and there's still plenty we have to cover in this episode, I want to talk about passing. This is what fans love to see and love see taking place on the race, you know, on the track. It's exciting. It's fun. You're seeing these tires go wheel to wheel, as we like to say, you know, where they get up side by side by each other. What our podcast is named after. He said the thing. <laughs> I said the thing. Wheel the to wheel. in the movie. <laughs> and getting into that, when we talk about passing, there are many instances where this can happen. But what I want to focus on now is when passing takes place during a DRS zone. And so you may be asking, what is a DRS? Well, it is an acronym, and it stands for Drag Reduction System. And what is taking place to the car that is behind the one leading is their rear wing. So the wing on the back of their car is almost acts like a flap. It is normally flat and flush, and it will fold up, allowed for improved aerodynamics, you know, improved wind movement, whatever the case may be, air movement, and allow them to gain speed faster, and which they would not be able to without it, making it easier for them to pass the driver in front of them. Well, you're probably wondering now, why do they not just use this all the time? It makes zero sense to even have that flap down. Why not just have it up and drive fast? Well, it's because this is still a sport and, and there still are rules for the sport. So on a track, there are normally maybe, I'd say two DRS, these drag reduction zones, you know, per track, maybe two or three even. We saw three this past time in Australia. They even had four, but they had to cut back because it was a little unsafe, they decided. So anyway, in order for a car to enable DRS, as you will hear it and as it goes by, they have to be within one second of the car in front of them when they approach a DRS detection zone. So what this means is there are specific points on the track, usually straights, in which the drivers will be allowed to enable DRS when they are within a second of the car in front of them. Now, there are a couple nuances to this that I will discuss real quick. It's usually not allowed for the first couple laps of the start of a race, just to give everyone time to get up to speed, get into their spots. If they are faster than the car behind them, give time for that to break up. Same thing takes place coming out of a safety car, which we will also discuss. But whenever they're coming out of a break, they have some time before DRS is allowed to take place on the track. Now, it's important I want to touch on these detection zones this year because this is changing the strategy of racing and the chess match we see play out live time on the track between the drivers. Now, I'll pass it to someone else to discuss what's taking place with this detection zone and why does it appear to be different? Noah, you seem excited. I'll throw to you because because it happened with you my final note before I pass to him is just remember in a DRS zone you have to be within one second of the driver in front of you when you enter it on the track it allows you to go faster and it allows you and gives you usually the best opportunity to gain ground and hopefully pass the driver in front of you Noah
1: yeah the reason that I
0: wanted to do this one so much is that my guy, Charles Leclerc, has been one of the biggest chess players of, of this DRS strategy uh, this year anyway. So, so one thing that he's been doing and that p- drivers have been doing is right before a DRS detection zone or r- yeah, right before that, they will maybe slow down just a tad, let the driver behind them pass so that they are the ones to get DRS. And, and not the driver in front. So that means maybe they're going into a corner right before the DRS detection zone. And Charles Leclerc is ahead of Max Verstappen. He kind of slows down during the turn so much so that Max Verstappen, who's less than a second behind, mind you, uh, can pass him. Then going into that straight at the DRS detection zone, Charles Leclerc is the one who can flip on this DRS Uh, Allowing him to retake the position of first place. Now with this DRS, I think uh, people who are smarter than us can have calculated to increase your speed by roughly 15 kilometers per hour, which is incredibly significant for these cars, even in straights when they are going so fast. So, So that's kind of the science behind it. We do know that the reason it is unsafe and they don't have it everywhere, because if they could have it everywhere, the FIA would probably like that because more overtakes equals more viewers. That's kind of the general rule of thumb. But um, the, the reason that they can't have it everywhere is when you do have this drag reduction going into turns, it kind of makes it The car a little more unstable and so you can't have it in these weaving sections that's why we're seeing the drs detection zones on these long straights um and and even short straights that they'll usually kind of
1: exclude from those zones yeah even in f1 races they have speed limits uh, where maybe you can't they they know you can't go around a bend too fast so even in in the sport where you're supposed to be driving faster. They still put you on a speed limit around certain parts of the track.
2: Okay. Well, I know we've we've been going for a little bit of time now, and there's some other stuff I think we still need to go in depth, but I want to change it up, put a little curveball in here. I'm going to throw out some words, and I want to go back and forth with, with you guys. And, you know, give me give me a quick definition, you know, as you can, so we can just knock out some of this terminology, shall we say, think it'll be good. Ground so let me start with, let's go with an apex. I'll start with, you Noah.
0: apex. So apex is when we, we might say hitting the apex. What does that mean? And it means when you're going into a turn, there is in a ima- picture, an imaginary line around a turn. Hitting the apex is hitting that, you know, that top of that turn that is the ideal spot uh, to, to kind of come out of the turn and hit your max speed. Um, so, so that's what we say when you're hitting the apex. Uh, that's something that, when, especially when you see qualifying, these drivers know the ideal routes, whatever, to take on these tracks. So if, if you're watching it closely, pretty much every car is going to be in the same spot because they know exactly where the apex is on every turn on the track.
2: All right. I think that was a good explanation of apex. Now to you, Tanner, what's a steward. Steward is basically a referee of the F one world. So these
1: people are going to analyze and make sure that everybody is in within, within the regulations and within the rules of racing and uh, uh, of car design of everything so if anybody's breaking any rules that they've set in the laws of racing the stewards are looking into it and they are penalizing finding uh what have you uh as meets the severity of the of the action that's only
0: some of the stewards though (laughs) there are there are also like fire stewards and safety stewards so they really use the word steward for pretty much everything. It might even be volunteers at the track who are uh, cleaning up debris. That Yeah, they use steward for a lot. But the, every time we use the word stu- stewards, we're going to be talking about those referees.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I'll go ahead and throw myself one, an easy one, just to keep it moving. An overtake, that's exactly what it sounds like, is just a car passing another car on the track, Called an overtake, you know. Sometimes they say they're going for the overtake, or in this many laps, you know, there'll be an opportunity for them to make the overtake. Now back to you, Noah. What's a paddock? What's what? What is the paddock? What does even that word mean? Yeah. So the paddock is kind of the,
0: you know, it, it's it's kind of a. I don't know that it has an exact definition. Uh, but the paddock is really the garages all over the circuit. You know, there, there's not, re- people won't refer it as multiple paddocks, uh, but, but really it is the paddock. That's where you're seeing, you know, the garages, the teams, the engineers. Um, and, and so almost thinking, think of it as an extension of the grid. That's That's kind of what I use to help myself with it.
2: No, that's good. Right. That's, that's where they're hanging out. That's where we see some banter going on when they're showing us how the engineers are reacting to a crash or reacting with taking place. That's usually where they are sitting and we see what's taking place. It's like the over
0: track version of the grid.
2: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Now over to you, Tanner, this is a word that particularly has come up this year and we've discussed it a couple of times but I want to see if you can do a good job explaining it concisely. What is porpoising? Dolphins. (laughs) (laughs) Dolphins. What is porpoising? Who would have thought we'd heard that with racing?
1: Yeah, exactly. Who would have thought? Porpoising is basically when these cars are bouncing up and down on a straight. So you see them talking about it, especially in qualifying. You see... Lewis Hamilton and Carlos Sainz and Pierre Gasly are some of the, the biggest uh, people that you see it on their heads just go up and down and up and up and up and down. And that's just because it's so bumpy with the airflow that their car generates. And I'm not going to try to explain the science because I don't even truly understand it. And neither do these teams because they can't get rid of it and keep going fast. They and so have to come up for air, right? Yeah, exactly. They just got to come up for air, but no, these, these, Guys' heads are going up and down like jackhammers just because the the car is making it seem like the track is so bumpy, even if it's, you know, perfectly flat. Like there are some teams who know how to get past porpoising, so you don't see their heads going crazy along the straights. Red Bull has been done uh, pretty well at that so far, but it's definitely something that's come into play with the new
2: regulations this year. Yeah, that was a good explanation. And I'm going to jump right off of that, and what we see these drivers' heads bouncing above is called the halo, I believe. It is kind of this circle around the driver's head, usually a little above its height, with the bar going straight down the middle of their vision. And what this does for the car, it serves as safety for them, right? This is in case of any accident to protect that neck, protect that head, whatever case if they're flipping, hitting into a wall, and in some cases, as we saw last year between Lewis and Max, have a whole nother Formula One car sitting on top of your head. It is not fun for the drivers, I'm sure. It's been an adjustment. It looks very hard, the view that they deal with, and it's impressive, but it's for their safety and is, you know, it's been helping as far as I can see and as far as the drivers can see. And the racing has still been fantastic. A question I have for you, Noah, is I'd like to know. What's the what's the difference between a, a fast a fast turn and a slow turn? What is what does that mean when people are throwing out those terms? Yeah, so it's
0: just like it sounds. Um, when you have these turns on a track, we might describe them as fast or slow. That really is just the pace that you're going through those turns. And so I'll, at a lot of city circuits, we might see turns that come you know sooner. Maybe they're sharper turns because these city circuits are. I'll, on streets a lot of the time. And and so those turns are typically slow turns, fast turns. You don't have to step on the brakes quite as much. You can kind of go mode push through them. Like we
2: just mentioned earlier. No, that was good. And back to you, Tim, we're going to keep going because like we said, there's a lot of different terms here when we're watching the race and we're seeing maybe some blue lights or some blue flags popping up in front of a driver. What's what is taking place there on the grid? What is what does that mean? What's taking place? What's happening? What are they signaling to the driver?
1: Yeah, so a blue flag, blue lights. It basically means that a car in front is coming to lap you. And so Formula One is a little bit different from NASCAR and IndyCar, where the teams in the back, so the Williams, the Nicholas Latifi, if Charles Leclerc is about to lap Nicholas Latifi, he has to get out of the way and just let Charles pass. There can't be any racing going on. He just has to get out of the way, let him go um, and move on from there. So it can get a little foggy if, uh, if somebody like Charles is going to pass a ton of different people on the race at the same time, who are already racing each other. So it can get a little bit weird like that. Um, But typically it's, Um, it just means that they have to get out of the way for somebody who's coming to lap them.
0: Yep. And if you ignore, just to add, if you ignore four blue flags in a row, then you're going to get a penalty. Um, So, so there really is some kind of added incentive to get out of the way.
2: And just to uh, cover a couple others, I think we're good with the rapid fire unless there's some other ones you guys want to cover. Cause I know there's a few other questions we want to maybe answer. And I don't think we've even talked about the points yet and how that works on race day. So I think that could be helpful to maybe talk over, but first I want to talk about the front wing. So we talked about the rear wing and the purpose of that is far as, you know, helping out with DRS. And the front wing, you know, it just helps with the aerodynamics, the shape of the car, you know, getting speed and all that. I'm not an engineer. We plan on bringing on engineers in the future to help discuss some of the ins and outs of it. I just want to point out that these cars may get their front wing damaged or other parts during a race. And during a pit stop, they're able to replace certain parts of the car, including an entire front wing, if need be, if the damage comes up. And you can see, you know, just a little bit of a different angle on a front wing or a little bit of damage can go a long way in affecting the driver's speed and what they're able to, you know, accomplish on a turn and things like that. Anything to add there?
1: No, I think you kind of hit it on the head, right? Like there's not much to a front wing that, that you didn't explain. It's one of the only parts on the car that you can replace on a pit stop and not just severely, severely lose time it still takes a lot of time and it's definitely going to set you back for the rest of the race uh, just based on how long that pit stop is going to take. But it is one of the only things you can change on your car coming into a pit stop other than a tire.
2: And so we would be bad hosts and bad formula one, you know, people, podcasters, whatever you want to call us. If we did not discuss how points take place. So as we mentioned You know, we have qualifying and the important, you know, you get into Q3 where you have the final 10. And at the end of the race, come Sunday, only the top 10 people get points. And I'll go through and rattle it off just once, just so we can have it out there. When you get first, you get 25 points. When you get second, 18, third, 15, then 12, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, and 1, going all the way back to 10th. Now, these points are important for the driver's championship, where it's just the total for each driver throughout the year. And finally, you have the constructor's championship, when it is the combined total for the two drivers of each constructor or of each team for the year. And yes, there are plenty of instances, even going back to last year, where the driver's champion was Max Verstappen, who races for Red Bull. But the Constructors champion was Mercedes, who had the drivers of Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton. So that's kind of why they are two separate championships. And there are, you know, kind of two different stakes on the line. Now, there is another way to gain points by getting the fastest lap. And so whichever driver gets the fastest lap, as long as they are in the top 10, they will gain an additional point. Now, that may not sound like much. But most of these drivers who are getting the fastest lap at these races, they're usually competing for the drivers' championship towards the top of the grid, the top of the rankings. And so, if you're able to get, let's say, you know, five to ten fastest laps a year, those points can really make a big difference in your standings and where it comes out to. Tanner?
1: Yeah, one thing I want to add with that, and this is something that we'll probably see a little bit more of as the season goes on. Uh, one thing I said earlier with when teams decide to pit. Like I said, it's the total pit time. So they want to know who they're coming out in front of and whatnot. And so one thing that usually happens over the course of the season, especially when there are superior cars to the rest of the grid, right? So Ferrari and Red Bull, as we know, are superior cars to every other car on the grid right now. And so we might see in a race with no safety cars, nothing like that, no restarts, which we'll touch on where those two teams are maybe 30 seconds in front of the next closest driver. And so we'll see somebody in third or fourth place stop. They are not caring about gaining places anymore. They just want to make sure they, they either get that fastest lap or they take it away from their opponent. So that can be a big deal in strategy coming towards the end of this season, especially.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, we've covered a lot. This is just our first, you know, Formula One explained Formula One for dummies. We haven't had a name for it. 101, whatever the case may be. We've covered a lot. There's definitely plenty more we can go into detail. But I hope this serves as kind of a starter package for everyone to kind of take up and move forward with. Feel free to do more research on your own, whatever the case may be. But there are a couple of fun questions that I think we need to answer when it comes to Formula One. So I'll throw it over to you, Noah. Do the drivers pee in the suit during the race? These races can take like up to two hours and they're not really getting out of it unless there's some massive accident or a weather delay. So I'm like, what do they do? Do they just like pee and sit in it? Like what's happening? Good question.
1: So they
0: do pee in their suit during the race uh, if they have to, because um, in, in the case that they wreck, you know. it's it's a bit of a health risk if they don't. And so they do pee in their suit if they have to, they are also drinking water throughout the race. Tanner, I'll let you take that one, but that's, that's one of those F1 (laughs) unanswerable questions that, that that we can answer whether we want to or not.
1: Yeah. Everybody, everybody who's listening right now, do us and do yourself a huge favor and, look at YouTube videos of Kimi Raikkonen yelling at his race engineer about not having access to the water spout, the the straw, not getting water through that during the race, because it's so funny just
2: to hear him rant about it. It's just, it's just pure comedy. So, so these drivers are peeing in their suit. They're drinking water during the race. So you mean to tell me a Red Bull driver in a Red Bull car isn't drinking Red Bull during the race? An energy drink and kind of this motorized, advanced, you know, kind of like an export, which Red Bull brands itself as. I'm not Max Verstappen. I'm being I'm being lied to. He's not drinking Red Bull. I'm fuming. I'm, I'm this is ridiculous. We need a lawsuit yeah. soup.
0: Yeah. So they do have to drink water throughout the races because though though that Kimmy Rekman video is hilarious, they get pretty dehydrated if they don't. We saw Checo in Mexico last year who his drink system failed and he was exhausted after the race. It's, it's pretty impressive, especially in some of those warmer climates uh, when you're in real heat, that it's tough to finish races without water. You you could be incredibly dehydrated. It's driving these cars for the whole race really does take a toll on your body. And if you don't stay hydrated, you know, you could pass out. Like it's, it's, it's no joke.
2: Yeah, no, this is a, this is a serious sport, right? These, these drivers are experiencing G forces on some of these turns, which they have to train for the trainings intense, It's a long time sitting and being mental, you know, it's mental fatigue and physical fatigue. And with that, you know, just doing some quick internet research, these drivers can lose anywhere between two to three kilograms during a race which is the equivalent of four and a half to six and a half pounds. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't, I don't know how often you're losing that much weight in a matter of 90 minutes, you know, to 120 minutes. It's just a very advanced way to do that. So who knows, maybe I need to get myself one of these F1 simulators and that'll help me get in shape for the summer. Who knows?
1: Yeah, man. I think Weight Watchers needs to put together a plan and just start Get an F1 brand out there so that they can uh put some different plans in action for those people who need to lose weight, me included.
2: Yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe we'll see a Weight Watcher sponsor for Andretti. <laughs> hey, no, get an
0: I... NFL O lineman there, in there you can do a pretty great uh before and after picture. I I know one of the more famous ones who retired, uh Jim's or Jeff Saturday, not Jim Saturday. Uh, Jeff yeah, Saturday now looks slim after having retired. So, so may- maybe he's been driving F1 cars. Who knows?
2: Yeah, who knows? Maybe those friends that you haven't seen during COVID magically got in shape. Maybe they're just sitting at home in an F1 simulator and not doing those at-home workouts. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> Is there anything else you guys would like to make sure we have covered in our 101 Formula One episode to make sure our fans, listeners? the newbies, whoever can have an understanding come race day.
0: There are a few more things that I would love to talk about, but we have gone on for a lot of your time. If you're still listening, you're probably tired of us. So you can expect another episode of us covering some of these F1 topics. Uh, if, If you have any more questions that we didn't cover, feel free to email us, tweet at us, just ask us those questions about stuff you'd like us to cover. Um, and uh, yeah, we'd be happy to. So, so let us know. But, but no, I think I'm going to cut myself off before I talk for another hour.
2: Okay, well, before we go too much off the track, shall we say, and get too out of hand, I'm going to go ahead and try to ring us in and wrap up this episode. We've really enjoyed talking through Formula One and trying to explain it. It's been an enjoyable time. I hope you learned something. It is a bye week. I hope anyone who is celebrating the holidays this weekend enjoy that. And we look forward to coming back with you in a week, talking a race preview for Italy, Emola, and being back out there. But during this bye week, if you have free time, we have tons of other episodes to check out if you're just not listening to us. If you've already listened to everything we've done, great job. You're our number one fan. But as always, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. This is a great episode to bring in a friend who maybe knows nothing about Formula One. And you just say, hey, give this a listen for 60 minutes. You'll know as much as I do and we can watch the next race together. Give it to your parents so they can understand. But post about it on social media and please leave a rating. Tanner and Noah, though they may fight, both of their favorite numbers is five, and they'd really appreciate it if you would give us that five-star review. It would mean a whole lot to them. <laughs> Didn't know you were going new, there. Get some new
1: F1 friends. Oh, exactly.
2: Friends. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, to catch all the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at F1 Wheel to Wheel. Thanks again. And that's the checkered flag for today. We'll see you next time on the Wheel to Wheel F1 Podcast.